anything witty? Sam, Sam, what's what's the wittiest thing that they said in in England your whole time there? The wittiest thing. I was there for four months. You want me to pick out the wittiest thing that was said? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I would assume that you just have the whole thing documented, like all the witty things you heard. No, I um. You don't have a witty oh, diary. Fact, no, no, I do. I do. The wittiest thing I heard. Um, the wittiest thing I heard was Sarah. I, I wrote it down because it was my roommate who actually tangent we're gonna have ben on this podcast at some point because he's brilliant oh, um excellent. from baylor uh and he loves mcintyre and charles taylor and all that but good man what he said was quote i've told this revan but quote rod Dreher is the rush limbaugh of traditional catholics <laughs> that's that's excellent i'm 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 not even gonna point out which i think i did last time but that he's eastern mm-hmm. orthodox but so if anything, Catholic, apostate Catholic. He <laughs> wait. Can no. you count Eastern Orthodox as apostates? Yes. Are they apostates? Really? No, 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 no. No, they're schismatics. No. I mean, they would be considered Eastern Orthodox. Like is an apostate, Catholic. but because Rod Dreher was Catholic and he switched, he's an apostate. Ah. Oh, really? He wouldn't uh, be considered schismatic. He'd be considered apostate. I don't know, but I'd like to think that. I think you just like at hominem <laughs> him, which is fair. I get that. Well, it's not an ad hom. It's it's an accurate description if it's true. Ah, true. Yeah. So, I mean, if I call someone a jerk because they're a jerk, is that ad hominem, or it, 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 am I just mm. simply stating the facts? I don't know. It, it, it's sort of the, a, a, the question of, is it ad hominem, or is it, you know, an appeal to reverse ethos, right? You know, mm. going going at their, their credibility as a speaker, because we aren't just the words we say, we're also the people who enact them. Ah, McIntyre on line three. He is very happy. Mm. Okay. Uh, uh, this is going nowhere, so I'm going to get us gone. Um, <clears throat> uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, first one of 2020. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. Sam's back! Sam's back! Oh, thank God. Sam, yeah, we, was, we missed you. I was so cold. I was so cold inside. You left me alone with Brevin for, for four months. Stephen, I'm so sorry for that. But yeah, uh, yeah. thank you for the warm welcome to our two listeners. I'm back. Um, so, yeah, you're going to be hearing me. No, I mean, if, 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 if you thought it was bad leaving Stephen alone with me, just think of what it's like to be alone with myself. Ooh, that's deep, man. That's really deep. It's dark. Mm-hmm edgy but yeah two listeners but given that you're back we hope that we might get back up to three wow. yeah well i, I would be honored listen every once in a while right I mean, Wait, who listens your mom yeah she, no, she, she actually she actually, sends I, me email she, updates she does <laughs> no i specifically did not tell her about this podcast because i think that she would think far lower of me if she actually listened to it That's well i know what's on my list for tomorrow mm. do you have his mom's email address probably oh, you okay, definitely do or yeah. not, I could get it. Um, but uh, speaking of uh, mothers, um, what do we have to drink tonight, uh, Stephen? In that, like, mothers <laughs> cause us to drink, or okay, fair enough. Okay. Um, I this have... is 2020. Non non sequiturs will reign. No, this is this is quite <laughs> true. Uh, speaking of non sequiturs, I am currently having a lovely beer of my own brewing, or I should say, of uh, mine and uh, my friend Tim's own brewing. It is a vanilla stout, and it is delicious. Damn. Well yeah. played, sir. Very, oh, thank you, sir. very nice. Uh, Sam, what are you drinking? I'm currently drinking a nice, warm Twinings Earl Grey tea because mm-hmm. I'm sitting in my house, and it's about 30 degrees outside and snowing, and the heat just won't turn on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're cold. Snowpocalypse nice. 2020. It's the, it's the sequel. Snowpocalypse 2020. Yeah. Except not enough to close down the ro- road. So, like, you still get school and work. Mm. but all just like you're just cold while you're doing it you still get uh, school work and buses uh that end up uh going parallel or um uh, buses that end up uh, crossing the entire street yeah that was another thing is i i guess i hadn't realized that i've lived here for years but i hadn't realized exactly how bad seattle drivers are in the snow until i was driving back from um up north last night and i'm driving in my four-wheel drive uh, crv which was fine but as i'm going Every quarter mile, there's a car that's totally spun out off the road. I had no issues, but I'm, I don't know. I'm shocked. I guess the, the stereotype apparently lives on. 
No, no, this this literally happened to my brother when he was driving home in his in his car, two wheel drive, uh, and he spun out and almost hit the guardrail. But oh, geez. Um, but uh, managed to, to to pull out of it and pull over safely. But from what yeah, I heard, like, in but, Seattle drivers' defense, the roads are not treated very well um, that's for true. being able to get the um, for being able to get traction, as well as unlike in, so in Michigan, for example, the snow will fall, but it f- will fall thickly, which will give uh, uh, cars an actual traction to grab onto. Mm. Whereas in Seattle, it's a thin la- it's a thin layer, meaning that it pretty much just remains like slightly icy and makes it far worse. That is fair, and, and also. Silly. And also, Brevin, for your brother, he's driving a Mustang. So, yeah. <laughs> not known for its snow handling ability. No, uh, not at all. Um, also, uh, speaking of not being known for snow handling ability, um, I am drinking some lovely chamomile tea. I'm just embracing the full grandmahood of my ripe old age. Um, you know, I've, I, I've been feeling it in the new year. My, my bones ache. Um, I can tell you whether the sun's out or not um just judging by like the twitch in my knee uh it's 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 great uh it's another year um we're all older so you know it's just just lukewarm tea for me until i die from here on out new Uh, year old you yeah exactly Mm. um but uh speaking of 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 new years and new times uh let's uh let's get a 2020 update sam where have you been for the past like three months that you've abandoned us? Do 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 Sam. Do 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 do. I have been. Give it one second. I have been um abroad, away from um our homeland of the United States of America. Um, I spent about three and a half half months in the United Kingdom studying. Studying where? University. It's at the University of Oxford. Ah, uh, yes, you're an Oxford man now. I am. Yes. Uh, it was a good time. It was it was a delightful um, place to live for a few months, and a good way to finish out my undergraduate career. I will say that there are three three big things I um I loved about Oxford and really learned while I was there. Um, the first is that well, if we had been doing the podcast while we were there, Brevin would never have had to ask, "What are you drinking?" Because it's beer. It's always beer. Always. Um, well, hold on. Uh, but like, did you learn to differentiate beers whilst you were there? What do you mean by differentiate beers? Ales, lagers, pale ales. Oh yes, all that. Yes, yes. All right, all right. So, so what? What was Sam's go-to? My, I mean, so for the first half, actually, I, I will say for the first half, I would, I would always get very intimidated when the bartender was like, "What do you want?" You know, what? Do you, and they're, they're not very charitable, and so I just order a Guinness, something like that. But afterwards, I really got into the Fuller's London, London Pride. I think was what it was, what it was called. And then there were a few custom-made beers for the specific pubs in Oxford, and those were always really good. All um, right. Yeah. So there was that. That was one thing I learned. Um, the second thing I really, I, I very much loved um, while there was the Queen. It was very nice to have a matriarch ruling over um, all of us and having the knowledge that we were under her. It, it really, it really gives the society a certain sort of order when you have the Queen in that way. Um, which leads directly to my third thing that I love, which is the aristocracy of Oxford. Um, the city was saturated in smugness. I've never, I've never experienced anything like it. Um, like, like for example, on I think it was my first or second weekend of term, me and a couple of my friends who are also um, who are also American undergraduates, we went beagling with a group of beaglers from from the Oxford uh, Country Sports Society. Beagling is that exactly what it sounds like it's exactly what it sounds like it's hair hunting with beagles huh. so you go out with this pack of beagles and everybody the the hunters themselves are dressed immaculately and in exactly how you'd expect a british hunter to be dressed in this green and white outfit with these ridiculous hats and everything um and then they follow the beagles through the through the countryside and you run behind them and try to get a good view of it and then Eventually, the beagles get on to a uh, to a hair, and then you pass the brandy and cigarettes around and watch them chase it down. Fascinating. That's that, an actual thing that still happens to this day. It's an actual sport. Yes, this is one of the Oxford Sport Societies, of and they do this every Monday or every Wednesday and Saturday. That is honestly fascinating. I had it no was fascinating. Idea. And, and, and Sam, yeah. do they ever actually catch the hares? Absolutely not. 
that I, that was a question I asked when we saw them when we saw the beagles chasing his hair because the beagles are adorable like they are amazing dogs and they're chasing his hair so earnestly and I asked one of the the senior beaglers how often they ever catch it and he was he was like oh never they've never caught it he, he's been going for three years and one time they caught a hair oh wow they don't even bring a game bag on these outings. <laughs> <laughs> want to go watch a dog chase a hare and feel smug about themselves while drinking brandy and smoking cigars that is the best thing i've ever heard yes that's the sport that's that's oxford but the even better is that there's an infinite ladder to this hierarchy so you you, it's just constantly people trying to one-up each other and out smug the other one it's it was amazing I'd never seen anything like it. Oh man! And um, now that you've come back, you can bring a little bit of that smugness here, and and just kind of casually dropping. Yeah, when I was in Oxford, I was in Oxford. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, uh, Richard Weaver writes in his excellent book "Ideas Have Consequences" that one of the maladies of the modern age is that we don't know who we are in relationship to any other person, mm. and so we I, don't know I, what's expected of us and and how to talk to other people really. Um, every mm-hmm. encounter is this is this horrible black box. But under an aristocracy, we all know exactly where we are and what our proper obligations, duties, and, and interactions are towards everyone else. And I think you mm-hmm. you glimpsed a little bit of the beauty of that in sort I of did. the yeah yeah in 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 the uh, benign snobbery of of, uh, of of you know this uh, you know simpering elite class of Oxford. Yes, um, that that's definitely true. I, I need to read that book. But yeah, that that sounds that sounds accurate. Now, the three actual things I love in Oxford or really enjoyed about Oxford. Um, the first was the the formality of the culture, like beyond the aristocracy and beyond the smugness. Everybody there was just a bit more formal and professional, and that I, I would say that that had a big impact on what it felt like to to be in the city. Everybody was held to a, high, a just a slightly higher standard, and it ended up making it, I think, for a nicer place to live. Hmm. Um, there was a higher standard of politeness that was expected from daily encounters, even though things that we, in America that we take for granted, like customer service, may not be a thing. Um, I also, this was actually my first time I'd ever traveled to Europe. So the, the ar- I, was, I was just amazed, as the nerd I am, by the architecture and the simplicity of the villages and just the overall maturity of the culture. Hmm. Um, that was probably the saddest part about coming back to America was realizing how modern everything is here. Even our oldest um, artifacts on the on the East Coast are are not old whatsoever. Um, and then obviously I was there to study, and so the rigorous and and focused academics was definitely a pro. Um, it was amazing what what's possible when a group of individuals, a group of undergraduates from standard liberal arts universities in America, what's possible when you're pushed just a little bit harder, mm-hmm. which made me sad for the American education system because that's not done here um, by and large, but it was amazing to experience. I know yeah, here, I, oh, oh, um, yeah, here, here it seems more that uh, educators are grateful for students to even remotely engage uh, and that mm-hmm. it seems that the push is please engage with me, not like please engage more, just kind of get you in the door and I'll, I'll be happy with that. Yes. That's that's exactly it. Is it's it, 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 in America, it's a lot more one-sided. Whereas the educator trying to get the student to be interested, and it's all on the educator to do that. Um, versus, and maybe this is just an Oxford thing, but in Oxford, there was a significantly higher emphasis on the partnership between the tutor and the student, hmm. and and being two scholars who are at different parts of their journey to the point where the tutor's offices were in the same buildings and right next door to student dorm rooms. Oh my gosh, really? Because they all, they all live and work together in this community. Um, so that was incredible to see. Uh, academically, I learned that I do not really understand political theory um, and that Kant was a, was a cruel man, but he also had less than he thought he had to say. Uh, definitely read a lot of Kant there. And um, that was, that was enjoyable to finish but not enjoyable to read. <laughs> I've, I've heard um, that about Kant, that he really is a snoozer. Yeah, it's um, it's incredible how many words one person can use to say so little. <laughs> Ooh, strong <laughs> rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, so so on a scale from from odd to even, uh, how much uh, can't you? Uh, uh, 
I uh, probably even. All right. Yeah. That pun just makes itself. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that would be my experience there. Um, oh, the last thing I, I was going to say is that it was definitely a different experience um, religiously than America. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. It was interesting to exist in a in a location that was formerly Christendom, a, a, mm. an entirely Christian society, but is now far more post-Christian than my own. And so you exist surrounded by these relics of a former time that are existent in, in the landscape, existent in the architecture. And people even acknowledge to a degree that they came from that. But also, they're quite dismissive of religion, far dismissive, far more than uh, I've experienced in America. Dismissive in a disrespectful way or just in a, yeah, that came, in, that came and went and whatever? In, in, a, in, a, in a reverent way. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was interesting. The, uh, all the colleges are incredibly secular, but they still have vestiges of religion that they practice today just out of tradition even though they, almost everybody doesn't believe it. Hmm. Um, and then you have the argument in Oxford specifically, where you have that very secular culture happening from an early time there. And you have the powerhouses of, of John Henry Newman and Pusey and Keeble and all those people fighting back against it. So it's an, it's an interesting city. And those arguments are still happening today. Yeah. I, I don't know why I, I had this thought, but I don't know how accurate it is, but it's a segue for some jokes I want to make. So even though it's bad, I'm going to make it anyway. Um, Go for it. And that is sort of the U.S. being a more religious society, but also very much vulgar, for lack of a better word, sort of in a mm-hmm. in a bar in a barbarian sense, in that so much of our culture is kind of anti-culture and like mm. anti-architecture and consumerist, whatever. Um, but at the same time, is sort of weirdly still. In some ways, I mean, Africa is probably eclipsing it. Parts of Asia too, you know, still sort of the 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 torch carrier in terms of advanced societies that are also still very religious. Sort of, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. like the like the the Goths or something. You know, you'll burn down Rome, um, but you know, you're you're still Christian somehow, and you keep it a, alive in one way or another. I, I don't know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, all that's a segue into you know, like speaking of living in the ruins of, of a formerly. Um, uh, of a formerly decent tradition, I thought of like several really good uh, jokes about Episcopalians um, <laughs> the, the the other day, and and you just reminded me of them. Uh, uh, how are uh, Episcopals and sponges alike? How how Brevin? How are they alike? Because <laughs> they're both squishy and dying out. Ooh. Ooh. Um, um, how how are Episcopals like very old men with high centers of gravity? I don't know how are Episcopals like very old men with high centers of gravity. Uh, because they don't have good stances on anything and they're dying out. Mm. <laughs> I had a third one, but I forget what it is. There was like a trifecta, but anyway. <laughs> What's another thing that's dying out? I mean, the rhinoceros is dying out. Yeah. The ice caps are dying out. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, sorry. Okay. That, mm. uh, that's That's all I got. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I, the, the Church of England is a, is a very interesting institution. I, I don't know what, quite what to make of it. Did you go to any services? Oh, quite, quite a few, actually. Um, I, I ended up actually attending, it was an, um, an Anglo-Catholic church for a bit. I'd never, I'd never seen anything like that in America, but apparently they exist. Anglo-Catholic? Um, yeah, it was this movement. It was actually, it was a movement that John Henry Newman helped start before oh. he became Catholic himself. Um, which is this movement that continues now today in the Anglican Church of moving back to their very Catholic roots, and so the theology is almost identical to Catholic theology. Um, uh, are they still distinct from Catholicism, or have they officially rejoined? They're under. They're they're still under Canterbury. Okay. So they have not rejoined, but there is an extent, there is an offer from the Pope that any wishing to any parishes wishing to rejoin can. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I guess that is one, maybe this is a bit of a cynical way to view it or a calculating way to view it, but that is one advantage of England kind of rapidly approaching obscurity as far as religion is concerned. The Church of England, I mean, is is being rapidly eclipsed by um, secularism, secularism. That is kind of good news for Rome in that eventually they'll realize like, hey, we're we're really not doing so hot on our own. Maybe we need to to join with Rome, which is a far kind of 
far stronger, um, far more mm. resilient religion than Church of England. Oh yeah, mm. and and with the royal family uh, sp splintering up, maybe the uh, church will be like, you know what, we don't really want these people to be <laughs> the uh, the heads of our religion anymore. Um, that was sort of you know just sort of a utopian ideal that could never come to be. Speaking of utopian ideals that could never come to be, uh, Stephen, I believe you have a very interesting article for us this week. I do. And may I say that that was a good transition. Thank you. Um, the, uh, so the article that caught my eye, I think it caught, caught it a, a week or two ago, uh, was a fascinating exploration into the world of mice. Uh, the article is called Death Squared, the Explosive Growth and Demise of a Mouse Population. And it's a, a brief study done by Dr. John Calhoun, a biologist who is keenly interested in mice habitations and what happened when paradise was achieved. Uh, he opens on a very apocalyptic note, uh, quoting from Revelation, quote, I saw a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by, by wild beasts of the earth, end quote. He distinguishes two forms of death death of the spirit and death of the body. Noting also from John's apocalypse, quote, he who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death, end quote. Uh, after the short poetic musing, he considers what happens when the second death is removed. Uh, having built many mouse ecosystems, he's gotten very good at this. He constructs his ecosystem so that death is minimized and comfort is maximized. There is no emigration uh, that is with an E, so no one leaving these ecosystems. Uh, there's no disease, predation, or hostile weather. Uh, everything is made so that the mice are all comfortable with access to an abundance of food, water, nesting material, and space. One may expect that overpopulation is inevitable. With mice breeding like rabbits until the whole space is crammed to the breaking point, however, nothing could be further from the truth in this case. Uh, he breaks up the timeline of the, uh, the ecosystems into four main phases. The first phase, phase A, Nothing much happens. Uh, he introduces four pairs of 48-day-old mice into a rather large, artificially constructed ecosystem. Uh, 104 days later, after they had gotten settled in and used to the environment and each other, the first litters were born, marking the beginning of phase B, which was an exponential increase in mouse population. Surprisingly enough, however, this phase stopped at around day 315, the doubling period dropping from 55 days to 145 days, uh, marking the beginning of phase C. One might think that this dropping in uh, in growth was due to overcrowding, uh, but one would be wrong. Uh, large spaces of the area were completely un unpopulated. Uh, day 560 saw the beginning of phase D, where the death toll, mostly from old age, began exceeding the birth rate. Day 600 saw, saw the last surviving birth, after which the number of pregnancies dropped as well. The last conception itself was on day 920. This decline never stopped, and eventually the colony died out. Uh, a number of really fascinating ideas or notes were taken from this. Um, uh, several kind of fascinating phenomenons or phenomena were observed. Uh, for example, young were rejected prematurely by their mothers. Uh, social bonding was frustrated by the population, and reproduction was completely halted. Uh, the rejection sometimes took on an extreme form, uh, the rejection of the mothers to their offspring, that is, uh, with mothers moving their litters uh, around from room to room and at times forgetting one or more of them. Social niches uh, became hotly contested, with rejected males uh, taking to lounging about water pools near the center of the ecosystem, and rejected females taking refuge to the higher on. on Eh, sorry, and rejected females taking refuge in the higher rooms. Uh, the males would become more violent, but not with contesting suitors to females, but rather with other withdrawn males. The females did not uh, have similar violence, however. Social bonding, it was suspected, was mechanically frustrated. That is, with so many mice, it became difficult for any interaction to last for the necessary amount of time. Survivors of this colony were taken out and placed in low-density ecologies to no avail, though. Even when matched with other non-colony mice, they still could not reproduce. They had lost all capacity for reproductive behavior. They would not engage in any courtship behavior or anything like that. Calhoun concluded that, quote, for an animal so complex as man, there is no logical reason why a comparable sequence of events should not also lead to species extinction. If opportunities for role fulfillment fall, fall far short of the demand by those capable of filling roles and having expectations to do so, only violence and disruption of social organization will follow. Individuals born under these circumstances will be so out of touch with reality as to be incapable even of alienation, end quote. This paper, for being presented at a, what one would think would be a rather dry biology conference, caught quite a lot of attention. Its apocalyptic tone, grim conclusion, and downright fascinating study inspired the public. Tenders brought it up during session. Tom Wolfe, a famous journalist and author, called New York City a, quote, behavioral sink, 
end quote, using a phrase Calhoun himself had coined, and even inspired the book, The Rats of Nim. Calhoun suggested that if physical space could not be extended, one possible solution to this phenomenon would be conceptual space, to open up art galleries and libraries, things like this, that would allow humans to indeed conquer the first death, the spiritual death, the death of the soul. Unfortunately, everyone seemed to love to hear about the diagnosis, but nobody wanted to hear of the cure, and Calhoun faded into obscurity, obscurity and nine years after his publication, died. Uh, this article was fascinating, and I highly recommend it. It provides an interesting window into why so many find themselves frustrated or listless or unfulfilled. Uh, it's a good study into how we can all have needs fulfilled and still be miserable, and I think it's a good warning for us all. Uh, people are quick to bash away at the small town experience, but if Calhoun is to be believed, it may be that the small town will be much better off than the city, especially the city that neglects its own soul. Uh, that's that's about that. That at least that's my the the thing I wrote. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen this level of theological philosophical engagement in a biology paper in, in I don't think ever I can't recall it I don't spend much spare time reading biology papers but still certainly um, I was pretty surprised I mean he was regularly quoting uh, Bible verses musing philosophically I couldn't tell whether he he was himself a believer or anything but yeah he did seem to to think that there was a lot of wisdom to be to be gathered from this Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, something, something. Economic prosperity is not the same thing as meaning satisfaction. When, when you were talking about sort of the the need for conceptual space to, uh, you know, satisfy the second death, um, it made me think of uh, Viktor Frankl and his logotherapy talking about hmm. man's inherent search for meaning, and that that's the thing that allows people to overcome all sorts of adversity, and also, you know, probably conversely, overcome all sorts of you know, blessings that would otherwise be numbing. Right. The, the, uh, the, the Nietzsche quote, he always loves quoting, um, uh, a man that has a why will, will be able to undergo any, I think it's any how, uh-huh. um, but in essence, like, yes, if you have that meaning, if you have that drive that survival naturally gives us, um, if you, if you can replace that with some conceptual drive, then certainly you can you can start enduring, but it seems that most of the traditional whys, most of the tr- traditional reasons, have kind of fallen by the wayside, and then we kind of look around, shocked to find that people don't like that, and people are miserable under those circumstances. Yeah, that's that's the other interesting angle to this, which is just sort of the mice finding this natural limit of growth. Just at some point, the logic that governs them as a group, the zeitgeist or whatever, just kind of becomes overwhelming and just shuts itself down despite you know the absolute best central planning and it really sort of brings up you know by analogy the the information problem and how that really is at the root of a lot of issues of human organization from everything from you know talking about small towns and the you know relational sharing aspect that allows people to satisfy those desires for meaning or at least theoretically does and then the, you know, conversely, the um, separation and sort of outsourcing of planning that a city might do uh, to make that sort of building up from the ground uh, and, and the knowledge that's gained from that um, harder, harder to get. I, I see it as almost a, a critique of the information problem by saying that even if you solved the information problem and you were able to get perfect information and create the perfect society where resources were shared between individuals perfectly, you would still hit a wall. You'd hit, you, you'd hit, you, it, I mean, and that's exactly what he's saying is that the information problem is a problem for the first death, but you still have the second death to contend with. And oftentimes I think our, our discourse around welfare policy and, and the sort of things that this, that, that um, I guess that, that that would be solved by utopia. It, we're only dealing with the first death. Not when I'm thinking about the information problem. I mean, the 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 classic example is that we don't know, um, or or when it's talked about, it's often talked about prices. But I'm also thinking about the information problem in terms of simple social and political organization. That there's so much that's so much meaning and activity that's generated without central planners, you know, things like little leagues or church or uh, uh, church organizations or charitable organizations or just all these little hats that we wear in different aspects that a central committee or that central planning organisms don't consider and that the 
that's where a lot of the meaning that makes life livable, whatever the material circumstances, is generated. Um, and, and I was thinking about this because uh, Roger Scruton just died a few days ago. Um, oh, very, I did not know that. Suddenly, I was yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, I love Scruton. But one of his obituaries was mentioning his reading of Foucault. And Foucault saw, you know, power structures in everything, that there's, you know, this insidious, you know, central coercion of society against, you know, of, of that, you know, the dominant versus the marginalized or there's different ways of phrasing it. But the obituary talks about how, how Scruton sort of found the philosophy that takes you out of that, you know, pseudoscientific fatalism of viewing things. And he found his way out, uh, topically enough, through English common law, which is this, jurispud- this jurisprudence that's built up over a long period of time from actual human interactions to generalized principles, but really based on people making friction with each other and building structures around themselves that wasn't based on you know, in initial power imbalances or domination, but just from you know, the building community calluses where people bump up against each other. And that idea of that in, in contrast to, to things like viewing, you know, society as this uh, insidious thing of coercion or, or thinking that that's the only way that it can be built or trying to build a mouse utopia where all of the problems are, are, are solved. It, it really does just ignore, I think, that core truth of how we interact with each other. And I think, yeah, anyway, English common law. So goddamn cool. <laughs> um. I think okay, so I, I actually recalled where I was uh, where I was going with uh, the whole the whole McIntyre thing in that so welfare as it is right now is designed to treat the second death the physical death uh, but not the first and to an extent that's well and good I mean you know people aren't going to have very fulfilling lives if they're dead um, but we it seems that we can't agree what a treatment of the first would actually look like. Um, you would have you you have you know fundamentalist Christians saying, well, clearly they must be going to church every week, and they must have you know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then you have secular saying, no, there is no God. What that looks like is I don't know. Whatever seculars think the 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 good life looks like, um, you know, like a healthy healthy family life, which indeed true. Um, or utilitarianism. Or utilitarianism. Uh, Peter Singer. Hi. Um, but we have no way of kind of collectively coming together and saying, okay, well. You know, religious, non-religious, utilitarian virtue. Like we, we have no common language with which we can discuss these sort of ethical issues. Ethics, in the sense of what is it to live the good life? Um, what is it to be human? How do we make these people more human? Because clearly they are not thriving. Clearly they are not flourishing in the way humans should be. Therefore, they 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 need help. They need education to do so. Um, but kind of the most we can actually agree on is well, we don't want them starving to death, so we should probably feed them. And that's about as far as we can go. And so that's where I think McIntyre would actually kind of nod, you know, vigorously in approval and say, like, yes, certainly this is part of the reason why, like, we need a we need some sort of common virtue language uh, with which we can operate. I need to correct myself earlier because I think I got turned around a little bit with the second and first death. Is I meant to say that the the, the welfare state is seeking to to solve the second death. Oh yes, but certainly. Yes, that was my error. So just to correct myself earlier, uh, but I, I completely agree with you there. Is I think that yeah, that disagreement is absolutely apparent in our culture indeed so i mean i i do I, I do find it also very interesting how people are very quick i mean the the article talking about this article noted that people were very quick to talk about the the problem and not about the solution there is kind of this morbid desire to kind of just shake our heads and say like yeah society it's really screwed up isn't it yeah that's really rough and calhoun's over here over here saying hey actually no i think i might have some some interesting things that might be able to actually fix this. And they're like, yeah, it's a bummer that there's, there's no way to solve it. And Calhoun's saying, no, there is. Well, I was thinking about that the other day is, you know, McIntyre is traditionally seen as an incredibly conservative figure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, first of all, he was writing from, if anything, partially a Marxist perspective, uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. And his views are, for the most part, quite consistent with the postmodern, partially consistent at least with the postmodern critique of modernity. And so I think it's very easy to poke fun, not to poke fun at, but to poke holes in and attack the modern system, because I think it's gotten to a point where it's so evidently bad that you can, you can combat it from, from several different views 
and be consistent. Mm-hmm. But but when you get beyond the point of just combating it, you get to the point of, okay, well, we can attack this, but those attacks need to therefore lead to a solution. That's where, first of all, disagreement arises. I mean, that's where McIntyre wildly diverges from what you'd hear from a postmodern critique of modernity. Mm-hmm. And second of all, you are reduced to vagueness and even, I mean, for lack of a better term, word absurdity in your conclusions. I mean, McIntyre, we all love him, but we are not truly going to retreat to become monks. That is not a thing that is going to happen. And so, you know, you you get to a point where you can't, you can't even have a a cohesive dialogue about that conclusion because of those two reasons Mm -hmm. or about your solution. But if there is one person who has a solution to this whole problem, it's Patrick Deneen, um, author of the book, uh, uh, was it why liberalism failed? I don't remember. Um, but in this particular podcast, we're looking at his article, uh, What the Fork? Or Why You Should Not Eat the Person Sitting Next to You, uh, published in frontporchrepublic.com back in 2009. And he proposes that the way to save civilization is table manners. So let me let me uh, just uh, read his opening quote. Uh, quote, The causes of the current economic collapse have been widely discussed and minutely explored. However, to date, I do not believe that I have seen anyone offer what I regard to be the definitive and irrefutable explanation, the decline of the use of the fork. In abandoning our habituation in eating with utensils, we have essentially rendered our appetites untamed. We have ceased to be mannered, and an unmannered society is one that invites collapse. Hannah Arendt, I believe, was the one who said that every generation we are invaded by barbarians, and we call them children. They're little beasts that need civilizing. And Deneen asks, all right, so what are these base instincts that we have to sort of wean children away from if civilization is to continue? And he notes that at the core of a lot of humanity's problems is that they are omnivores. That is, they're inclined to eat meat, which means that they're predatory animals, which means that they have a desire to kill. Uh, Quote, to kill is an awesome deed. Our desire to sustain our lives drives us to combat and overcome the survival instinct of other living creatures. Our diet reveals our rapacity, our potential for savagery, the very inhumanity of our humanity. The fact that we eat meat also means that we can eat each other. And he notice, and he points out that this is not unknown throughout different civilizations, but over time, and as civilization has grown across the world, there has been very strong taboos and uh, systems and norms that uh, advocate against such behavior. And one of the most important, he contends, is table manners, that they are the, quote, daily manifestation of our commitment to the aspiration of human flourishing, of a realized humanity that ascends from mere or given humanity, end quote. And the reason for this is that eating with utensils, namely forks, doesn't make eating food any easier. It makes it much harder. By using the fork, we have to get small bites of food and then bring it all the way up to our mouths. What this does is it slows the pace of eating. It makes us look at each other face to face. It allows us to communicate while we eat. It makes the eating and the satisfaction of our, you know, uh, savage desires a secondary thing to communication and communion with other fellow humans. And even things like knives, uh, the way that we use them indicate our desire to overcome our most base instincts. For example, knives at the table have, you know, in large part been phased out of the normal diningware set. The knives that it, that remain are blunted. They can't stab and you use them in your weak hand, which means there's not much, you know, ability to attack people uh or, you know, eat them, I suppose. When one does get a steak knife in to eat, you know, some large cut of meat, it's used very specifically for that cut of meat and then is removed immediately afterwards. The the sharp knife, the deadly knife, the violent knife doesn't stay at the table. And he notes that America is probably the most advanced in terms of table manners uh, because, quote, in Europe, the knife is held in the weaker hand, making it less likely that there will be knife play at the table. In America, food is cut with a knife in the right hand and the fork on the left. After each cut, the utensils are switched to the opposite hand, and that single piece is eaten. Americans are regularly subjected to scorn and derision for this awkward practice. But 
American table manners are, if anything, a more advanced form of civilized behavior than the European because they are more complicated and further removed from the practical result, which is always a sign of refinement. And so I wonder, is our current crisis not best explained by the decline of the family meal, of the displacement of the meal with grazing, that manner in which beasts eat, of the rise of fast food and the consumption of increasing numbers of meals, quote, on the run? Was this not the most visible sign of a people with untamed appetite, a people lacking in restraint, civility, and a willingness to submit to forms? If our leaders were truly interested in in inculcating virtues, including responsibility among the citizenry, there might be no better way to start than to commend the reintroduction of good table manners, end quote. And so obviously, if we teach table manners to everyone, uh, uh, all of our problems will be solved. I think that's what he said. Obviously. Well, and I like how this actually ties ties in quite well with uh, Sam's comment on the manners of uh, Oxford society. And when he was saying that there was this kind of longing that that arose in me of like there is kind of a nice gentility that comes with it it is i guess for lack of a better term like a classy affair when people know how to conduct themselves in particular ways um i mean i've often kind of commented to friends how i long for uh you know the the days of yesteryear where you know people were more formal outside of the house you know you would you know men would wear suits women were would would wear dresses and that also like that applies to the table as well that restaurants are always very formal affairs there is like 100 years ago there was no mcdonald's i think um and and all meals are rather formal affairs and there is kind of this lamentable decline from it i really like the the part in the article um where it discusses how uh, like in a lot of American cinema, you always have the Amer or you have the American going over to Europe, where he or she is taught, you know, good table manners and whatnot. But by the end, inevitably, the Americans have to teach the Europeans how to quote have a good time. For example, taking Princess Diaries to Julie Andrews's mattress sledding down the stairs. Um, and there is kind of this. There is kind of the sa- sadness that comes with the inability to take one's self and one's uh, civilization almost seriously. It really goes to just sort of the base idea of things like, you know, delaying gratification of sacrificing today for tomorrow, of the just ideas that remove things from their base functions, whereas McDonald's gets pretty close to what is the most absolute simple, fastest way that we can get calories into one's stomach and reduces, uh, you know, plays to the most base possible instincts it, it's bright yellow and red to gather our, to grab our attention. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the fast food genre in general, you don't even have to sit down at a table anymore. You can be in your car moving around. Uh, no utensils, as the article noted multiple times, no utensils necessary at all, um, which is just kind of an indicator of how how low that has kind of slid. And yet, as a counterpoint, there's some great article. I don't know if we discussed it on this podcast, but there's an excellent article in First Things a while back talking about back row America and talking about the cultural centers of small towns that are dying out, which the two places are churches and McDonald's. Those are the places where people gather to be together, to have community, to interact with each other. So even in places, and, and you know, I can attest from personal experience, you know, I'm not high and mighty about fast food. I eat there and I find it you know, it, it can be very fun to go there with friends to to have that be a communal experience and sort of, you know, remake in a different image the, um, uh, you know, it, it can transcend its, you know, sort of uh, savage form at least a little bit. Um, I mean, like who needs to break bread when you can break a quesarito? Mm, word. Now word. we're talking. Uh, and, I mean, certainly, like I, having grown up in Spring Arbor, a very small town with primarily just a church and a mcdonald's uh that that rings so very true uncountable hours in either the church or the mcdonald's with friends and some very fond memories uh crafted there but even then i would argue like 50 60 70 years ago you had analogous structures i mean the church was still the church but also you know you have a club that you would go to um to you know go mingle with your peers uh rather than a mcdonald's um or a, a simple restaurant where you still sit down and you have a meal and you spend time together. This sounds strangely like Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. Uh, I haven't read that. Exi- oh, it's it's um he wrote it in 2000, <clears throat> but it was a study of social capital in America, and he breaks down the decline in social capital that we're seeing. And the book 
its title Bowling Alone got its name because there was he noticed this uh, even though the number of bowlers and bowling alleys remained steady from the 50s until what was 2000 when he wrote the book the number of bowling leagues declined astronomically and so his rationale is that people are still doing the things they used to do but they're doing them alone and Mm. they're more isolated they're bowling alone um and and it's, it's an interesting kind of study on from an economic perspective using social capital as his as his measure for where our, our society is going. And I, I think that it, it has some vast philosophical uh, implications. Well, certainly and that ties quite, it ties in quite nicely with um, the, the rats Nim article mm-hmm. that like, these are the sort of conceptual spaces that Calhoun was advising. He was saying, okay, certainly, you know, you, you have a limited amount of space, but you can use that space effectively and you can, or, not you can sorry he didn't say that uh, but you still have conceptual space that you can do and one of his big things was uh the rat these rats could did not have any social niches to fill and those were the ones that would become incredibly withdrawn something like a bowling league that is a social niche that can be filled uh and it's it is a a shame that those niches are disappearing because that leads to more and more withdrawn people and that Brings, and that also ties very nicely into another important social niche and um, also, I would say, very powerful conceptual space, which is beagling every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, so I, <laughs> I would say with, with our topics, we have achieved full consilience of, of knowledge. Um, we have basically made us a, a singularity. So, You know, of all the that. articles we've ever done, like I think the... These were like still very random, but they tied in quite nicely with each other. Yeah. What do rat utopias, beagling, and tableware have to do with each other? All about human flour- flourishing. It's all about that virtue. All about that virtue. About that virtue. No, no vice. No vices. Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Okay. Well, now I'm just mad at myself for even trying to do that. So uh, when one is mad, it was one... lamentable. One does want to rant. Uh, so, Stephen, what are you lamenting? Oh, sorry. No, no. Stephen's going last. Sam, what are you lamenting? Yes. Well, so, I'm lamenting. Um, <clears throat> you, you may say that America is attempting to be more sophisticated with our awkward switching of the knife and fork. But I would say that no, in, indeed, our supermarkets have become far less sophisticated. And and, and this is more of a, an observation than a rant that I observed um, as part of the, the re-entry process. How lar- how how much food we purchase? I walked into a, a supermarket for the first time once once I came back and I needed to restock my um my cupboard, and I wanted to get a a small amount of milk. I only needed a very little bit for for a meal I wanted to make, and the smallest I could find was I think a half gallon, which was far too much. I ended up giving almost all of it away to my housemates, but it just it just surprised me with how I. How much food Americans purchase in, um, and how large the quantities are at the at the supermarket. I don't understand it. I do not know why it's necessary, and I think it's a waste. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of good food, and I think it's a waste of our manners. So, well, I mean, also it could it, it's probably linked to the uh, the obesity problem that Americans have. I mean, it's the classic like never make a smaller plate. If you have a smaller plate and therefore take smaller portions, most of the time you end up just as full if you had taken that larger plate with the larger portions and it's, it's mm-hmm. a matter of just simple portion control, but it seems that Americans indeed, even in our supermarkets have a problem with this. Yeah. Like I, uh, I wish to purchase one stick of butter and I had to buy four, that sort of thing. Well, I, so like you say all these things and you're like, you're saying, Oh, the earth, they have smaller portion sizes. They're all great. But answer me this. Why are all Americans taller than six feet and all Europeans no taller than five, eight? They're all malnourished. Americans are the most healthy, most well-fed, you know, most calorie per dollar nation in the entire world. And I just, you know, you're this, this sort of like self-serving, like I only want one stick of butter at a time. It's like it's insane. It's I, I, I'm I'm embarrassed. Um, but but you know what else is embarrassing is is The Witcher, uh, which is a show on Netflix that I just watched through eight episodes. It's a fine show. Um, it's 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 arguably not quite aimed at me um it, it's sort of going for the game of thrones crowd that's you know disillusioned and just really wants uh something else and i didn't watch or read game of thrones and i haven't played or read 
um, the Witcher games or or books. Um, but all that said, the show was just frustrating in itself. Henry Cavill, I think his name is, is is the Witcher, and he just has full on frog throat the entire time. Like no one talks that gruffly all that. Like it, it just it, it has to hurt your vocal cords. Like there's just no way. And on top of that, none of the characters are likable. It's very aggressively gray versus gray morality just everywhere, which is, you know, supposed to be edgy and cool. But then there's like these weird, unclear taboos. It's like, oh yes, we're all doing horrible things, but you can't do that. That's even more horribler. And at best, like the bad guys are like marginally worse than the main characters. It also unearths some touchy themes and like race stuff and like discrimination, but it doesn't have the world building structure or continuity to like nail down any of the concepts. The world just isn't thick enough to accommodate it. And the sort of classic evil empire group, again, because of this aggressive gray on gray world, I am tempted to go all empire is the good guy in this show again, if only because the good guys are totally inarticulate about anything that they're trying to accomplish or why they're in the right at all. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a show, stuff happens, but uh, I don't care. I would say a la Howard Wasson McIntyre, the, the society that has forgotten how to tell good stories or uh, stories of, uh, of goodness, of virtue, of, like, of heroes in the traditional sense. That is a, a society that is not long for the virtuous enterprise. And is that a tie-in to your rant? Oh, no, that was just me wanting to talk about McIntyre for the umpteenth time. But I think it is tie-in to your rant, though. Uh, it, to an extent, yes, it does. So speaking, you, you talked of, uh, of a movie based on a game. I am talking about a game based on the movie. And uh, I, I will uh, open with simply saying that my rant is a mixture of both wild delight and extreme vexation. So I recently played the most recent Star Wars game to come out, Jedi Fallen Order. And it was brilliant. The story was impeccable. The characters relatable and likable. The villains were chilling. The protagonist was was noble. The environments were vivid. The duels fantastic. In short, it was everything you want out of a Star Wars experience. Now, wasn't without its flaws. They took a page from Dark Souls and made the game extremely unforgiving. A single single blaster shot or or a bite from an animal was enough to seriously damage you. And unlike recent games, such as Force, Un- Force Unleashed, you are not a god among men, but rather a weak apprentice attempting to just survive. That itself is not a problem. I actually really like that. But it did make it such that the some levels were more frustrating than fun, and also just a myriad of bugs that bordered on the comical did a really good job yanking you out of the game. However, all of that I am more than re- ready to forgive based on the characters in the story. I believed in them. I was sincerely moved during several of the scenes. Well done, Fallen Order. You have delivered on everything I expect out of a Star Wars story and more. Which leads to my vexation. Fallen Order is proof positive that good stories can be told in this universe. Not just good, great, moving, beautiful. Why is it that with the sequel trilogy... Sorry. Why is it that with the sequel trilogy, it simply could not do the same? Disney has the best writers, directors, and actors money can buy. Combining all three budgets of the sequel trilogy almost yields $1 billion, $837 million to be exact. And yet they couldn't come up with anything better? I don't wish to be overly critical. Their movies are not as bad as some YouTube critics are wont to say, but they certainly were not all that amazing. And each time I saw one yielded less and less feeling, less and less interest, until finally with Nine, I left satisfied that I at least didn't hate it. Sweet mercy, Disney. This is a great universe that you have the rights to, and you clearly have the ability to contribute quality additions to it. Fallen Order was amazing, and it both saddens and angers me when I consider that the main movies could have had the same quality to them, but for some inexplicable reason, didn't. As as one podcast that I listened to has observed, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, the person who's in charge of the whole Star Wars for Disney, um, has done such a horrible job at managing this whole franchise and the movies especially that um she's probably going to get herself promoted out of you know harm's way here pretty soon and then <laughs> someone else will take over and we'll Maybe see that happens. was her strategy all along Wait, are you quoting the sub beacon Brevin? i am quoting the sub beacon you know, <laughs> know it. yes i mean th- do any of you guys subscribe to the argument that it's all the fans fault not all do any of you think there's there's a bit of truth I, in that? I haven't heard this this theory. I mean, I'm assuming it's blaming the fans' reaction to seven. Like people lambasted seven, so eight. They tried to compensate and do what they thought the fans wanted. The fans hated it even more, and so nine. They tried to tried, tried to course correct yet again, and the fans still freaked out. Basically, going all the way back to the well, I mean, it, it's a little bit more longer reaching, even. I and mean, I think that the sub can touched on this. So if we're copying them sorry but um 
No, it, it, it's basically reaching, reaching all the way back to the original trilogy. There were huge flaws in the original Star Wars trilogy. They're Certainly. wonderful movies. They're some of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and there are some some true pieces of cinematic brilliance in those films, but they are not without their flaws. They're not entirely consistent. There are corny jokes and corny characters that nobody, that, that very few people liked when they came out, but we still stuck with them and they became cultural cornerstones. And so we forget it, but, but, but what we have now is we forget about those flaws and instead we replace, we replace those legitimate but not critical flaws with our complaints of the prequel trilogy and say, well, we don't want that again. And so the argument was here that was that Disney was put in the impossible place of having to take a series that was flawed from its beginning, albeit very, very good, and build something that was just like it, but without those flaws. And it, it was impossible. See, I think I would for the most part agree with you because you are correct. Like the weight fans put on the original trilogy is unfair. There are some parts where like, for example, the Ewoks going and just shredding through the most elite division of stormtroopers out there like that. I cringe think uh, cringe thinking about, you know, Luke's rather childish, annoying voice and behavior in, in four. Like, certainly I, I'm I'm completely with you. And I think that it is unfair for fans to be putting Disney in that position, of course. I would argue, though, that Rogue One is an example, is a another counterexample. That Disney, oh, Disney that produced movie. Rogue One. I think Rogue One was objectively a good movie. It set the standard for me as far as prequels are concerned. It took one I, tiny aspect out of the the original uh, series. It knew what it was. It knew it wanted to explain that one aspect. It did it. It did it really, really well. Had some great characters, great plotline, and from what I can tell, most reviews were fairly positive. Yeah, and furthermore, I so. Disney was in a difficult position. That's that's extremely true. But the easy counterfactual to the whole, like they were in an impossible position was at least have a plan for three movies when you go into it. You you literally had a director starting a trilogy. The next director undoes what the previous guy did, starts his own trilogy. And then the third guy, which who's the same as the first guy, undoes the second one, basically makes it completely ir- irrelevant and just continues on from the one that he did before so it's 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 not even that that they were in an impossible position because if you don't know what you're going to if you don't know what your overall arc is over three movies then just don't start it the problem mm-hmm. was that they just never had a plan to begin with and i i think on that note i was i was discussing it with coworkers and i think the conclusion i came to that uh, came to that the the kind of directors trying to contradict each other was they they broke rule number 1 of improv is always say yes and instead of yes but mm-hmm. if, even if like i disagreed with a lot of the choices eight um eight made but kind of for better or for worse they made those decisions it's in the canon it's in the story you can't just pretend they didn't happen um you have to roll with it and try like you can certainly try to fix some of the mistakes that were made, but you can't pretend that they didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's man. the thing is that I would have far rather watched either a Ryan Johnson trilogy or a J.J. Abrams trilogy, because I think that either trilogy on its own would have been fine. I think that Ryan Johnson would have been worse. I don't think it would have been that great, but it wouldn't have. I don't think it would have been worse than the prequels. Um, and I think the J.J. Abrams trilogy would have been fairly good. But both of them were completely sabotaged by spending all most of their effort trying to fight against the other one, which is childish and hilarious. Well, and hilarious, it but also hilarious, but yes, <laughs> but also is, is sad that you manage that they managed to take what was a good franchise and run it through the mud. Yeah. yeah. It, I, I, and the other thing that just makes me weep is that the star Wars, legends now the previous canon was just uh it was so rich it had it like solid it it had some good stuff like can you imagine an admiral thrawn trilogy Ooh. after oh starting in seven with an oh man that would just be amazing but or the, anyway. the skywalker kids jaken and jaina yeah no that would be prime great... characters yeah yeah i mean just think we could have had thrawn instead of hux now i so i loved the old canon i really did when i heard that disney was removing it i was upset but i understood like that that canon was so extensive it was so massive i don't think they could have operated within that space um in a in an intelligible way um 
you would have had a so many fans constantly complaining like, well, you didn't follow that part of the book. You didn't follow that part of the book. And you contradicted this part and that part. I mean, eventually they, I think they had to draw a line and say, look, that was great. We, we just need to start over. Um, yeah. Probably a lot of that will be cut, but that's uh, fair. yeah, That's definitely fair. <laughs> uh, so uh, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, we'll see you around in a galaxy far, far away. Space Cowboy. I apologize for not bringing up Dave Buckle. Damn it. Almost made it. You weren't in there right at the end. <laughs> you couldn't let it go.